If you'd like to open your Bibles again to 1 John chapter 1, again it's page 1225 on the Pew Bibles. And we're going to read 1 John chapter 1 verse 5 to chapter 2 verse 2. 1 John 1 verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Not long to go now, just two weeks and six days. The astute, or possibly even the awake among you, might have calculated that contrary to what you might have expected in this season of Advent anticipation and anxiety, I'm not actually talking about Christmas. In two weeks and six days, there comes a day that I'm always glad to see pass. And it's not the last day of the school term before any teachers out there get excited. Can anyone work out what on earth I'm talking about? The longest day or the shortest day, the longest night, yes. It's the winter solstice, the shortest day of the year. And I learned something new. It varies from year to year. Some years it's the 21st of December, and then this year it's the 22nd of December. Now, I'm not really looking forward to the shortest day, but I'm looking forward to it passing. Because at least every day after it passes, you can try to encourage yourself that the days are starting to get a bit longer. Although it takes a month or two for it to seem seem as if there is any improvement. I suspect many of you share similar sentiments. We don't like the short, dark days. We prefer living in the long, lazy days of summer with the light stretching to late evening. Of course, we can always take some comfort. There's always somebody worse off when you think of the poor Scandinavians and Icelandic folk who will only enjoy about four hours of twilight over the next few weeks. Astrid Lauda said, the sun is nature's Prozac. I don't know who Astrid Lauda is, but she sounds Swedish, so therefore I'm sure she knows what she's talking about. Light is one of the most powerful forces in our world, and it's something we can't imagine living without. In fact, were it not for the heat and light from the sun, our world would be a dead ball of ice. And also, light is the thing that travels fastest in this universe. In fact, some wit once said, light travels faster than sound. That's why most people seem bright until you hear them speak. (laughs) The theme of light and darkness is one which John uses in his first letter, and it pervades the message of the passage that we're going to look at. I've called this morning's sermon simply, Walk in His Light. I'm going to look at it under four headings, one statement and three questions. God is light. Do I walk in the light? But I have sinned. What if I sin again? Now, the pedantic corners of the congregation will spot that the third point is technically not quite a question as it's phrased, but work with me on that. So God is light. John says in verse 5, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. 
God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So from the outset, John makes it clear that he's not putting forward his own words. He's not laying out an argument that might be thought to be on the same level as that of the false teachers. The message has come from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father. Him whom John had heard, seen and touched, as he's already told us in the opening verses of his letter. And before we get into the message, I want us to note that when facing the doctrinal problems that John's readers were dealing with, he doesn't start with the issues and the arguments. He doesn't begin with the church or the people. He begins with God. God is light. What does that say to you? What images or ideas does that conjure up in your mind? One way we can think about it is to consider what effect light has. These dark mornings are something of a trial for me. I get up a bit before Alison, and that's not a value judgment. That's simply a statement of fact. But kind and considerate that I am, I keep the light off in the bedroom as I potter about getting ready. It's a challenge. Stubbed toes, tripping. Who put that shoe there? Where's my tie? What color socks am I wearing? Some mornings I'm told I can put the light on. I suspect it's more to reduce the awful noise that I'm making in a vain attempt to keep me from waking the children. But when the light goes on, the problems are made a lot simpler. I can see where everything is. What was unclear is now obvious. What was hidden and obscured is now clearly evident. God is light. In the opening verses of the Bible, he says, Let there be light. He is the God who reveals. He illumines. He sheds light in the darkness. He gives us his revelation. He is the God who has spoken into the darkness. He has not left us to guess at what, uh, who he is or what he wants. He makes his will clear so we have no excuse for tripping in the dark. And his greatest revelation, as John said back in verse 2, the life appeared. In the person of Jesus Christ, we see the pinnacle of God's revelation. And this is not a new concept that John has come up with. He's written about it before in his gospel. In John 1 verse 9, we read, The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And John knew this from the words of Christ himself, which he recorded in his gospel in chapter 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. God is light. Also tells us about his character. John tells us in him there is no darkness at all. It speaks of God's holiness, his absolute purity. The light of God is pure, undiluted, uncorrupted. God does not and cannot tolerate sin. More than that, God hates sin. His wrath is poured out against sin. We may not voice it, but perhaps at times we're tempted to think that, yes, sure, God is light. He's pure, but a little bit of darkness really won't affect him. In him there is no darkness at all. As fallen, sinful, impure human beings, we can find it hard to imagine such sinless perfection, such complete purity. John knew what it was like firsthand. He had walked, talked, and lived with such light. He knows what he's talking about. So before we can answer questions about our own lives, our sin, 
our failings. We need to have a right view of God. We can so often seek to have a distorted view of God to create him in our own image so as to lessen the impact that God's holiness might have on our lives. But before we can hope to learn about how we can have fellowship with God, how we can walk with him, we need to know who he is. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Do I walk in the light? Having started with the proposition that God is light, John moves on to apply it to our lives. When we come to think about our walk in life, John presents us with two options. He doesn't give us a middle ground or a halfway house. One is negative and one is positive. He starts with the negative in verse 6. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Do your deeds match your words? You claim to be walking with God, having fellowship with him, but does your life contradict what you say? Are you concerned about sin in your life? What does it mean to walk in darkness? To foreshadow themes that John will develop in later chapters, it means to be a person of hate rather than love. It means you're a person who loves the world, the things of this earth, its desires and rewards, its pleasures and comforts. These are the things you cherish. It means that you don't fully understand the reason why Jesus came to earth, and that was to completely destroy sin and the work of the devil. Can a Christian be like this? Can we claim to have fellowship with God yet walk in the darkness? I note what John is not saying. He's not here simply talking about the fact that we still sin. He will come to that. He's not talking about the wrong steps that we all take. He's talking about the direction that we are walking in. This implies a constant movement, a direction of our life. The focus, the goals which we are heading towards, our way of life. Is it possible for a Christian to live like this? It may be possible. But if that's you, you will not be enjoying fellowship with God. No matter what you claim. You may be saved, and only God knows that. But if your life is a contradiction to your claims, then neither we nor you can have any assurance that you're a child of God. The positive. But just as God is light, and as he is in the light, we are to walk in the light. And it's the contrast of what we've just considered. To walk in the light is to see things as God sees them. It's to see sin as he sees it and to share his values. It's to view the things of this world as he views them. It's speaking of a constant moving towards God, his light, his holiness, seeking his will, seeking by the power of his spirit to overcome sin in our lives. Yes, our walk may not be perfect. And yes, we may falter, take a wrong turn, hesitate. But the overall direction of our life is guided by and moving towards his light. Consider a plant placed in a windowsill. How does it grow? In which direction does it grow? It grows towards the light that feeds and sustains it. And that's the picture of the Christian walking with God, walking in his light. There are two things that result from walking in the light. Firstly, we have fellowship with one another. Well, what does one another mean here? 
If you read verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Could apply to fellowship with him as in God. If you look back to verse 3, John is talking about fellowship between the believers and fellowship with God. Perhaps it means both. Walking in the light means walking with God, but not in isolation. It implies fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ too. Something again which John will return to in later chapters. The second thing that results is that, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Is John referring to what Christ has done for us in salvation, or is there an ongoing work implied? I think it's both. Yes, Christ's sacrifice was once for all. As we walk in the light and have fellowship with God and one another, we have the assurance of our sins forgiven as his blood has taken them away. But also Jesus' blood removes the obstacle to our continual fellowship with God, our sin. And it cleanses our conscience on an ongoing basis. The question that comes to each of us, do you walk in the light? Oh yes, you might make a profession of faith in Christ. You might say you believe all the right things. There is no problem with the words that come out of your mouth. But what about the words spoken by the way you live your life? By the thoughts in your head that no one else but God sees? Which direction are you walking in? Oh yes, perhaps you did once walk in the light. Perhaps you can identify with what it means to have fellowship with God, fellow believers, and to know the cleansing of conscience that comes from Jesus' blood. But the question is for the present, for the here and now. Are you walking in the light or in the darkness? If you're walking in the darkness, yet claiming otherwise, John says you're lying and not living by the truth. You do not enjoy fellowship with God or with other believers and your conscience is not clear. All is not lost. There is a word of hope coming. But I have sinned. In verses 8 to 10, John is going to deal with two false claims and then he will tell us what we are to do. Firstly, let's deal with the false claims, verse 8 and verse 10. And it seems as if John is simply repeating the same thing. But there is a difference. In verse 8, John says, If we claim to be without sin. This is a false claim that says we do not have a sinful nature. Some false teachers of the time denied that they had sin, or rather denied that sin dwelt in the spiritual body. And as they proposed a kind of dualism, they said that their spiritual lives were not affected by sin in the body. Throughout Christian history, at various times, different groups have claimed it is possible to completely rise above sin in your life and leave it behind. The victorious life, the second blessing. Such a teaching is pernicious. It deceives believers and makes us feel inadequate for the wrong reasons. Confronted by a man who claimed to be without sin, Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, invited him to dinner. After hearing the claims, he picked up his glass of water and threw it in the man's face. The man expressed himself very forcefully to Spurgeon about such a lack of courtesy. To which Spurgeon replied, Ah, you see, the old man within you is not dead. He had simply fainted and could be revived with a glass of water. 
John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. We may deceive ourselves, but we'll rarely deceive others and never God. In verse 10, John develops it further. He says, if we claim we have not sinned. The first claim was about not having a sinful nature. This time, John is addressing those who claimed they didn't engage in sinful actions. It's not sin. We can see so much of this today. Sin has been redefined, reclassified, redesignated, repackaged in a far more palatable form. Lifestyles aren't sinful. They are alternative. Drunkenness isn't sin. It's an occasional lapse. And as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else, what's the problem? Anger, bitterness, envy. These aren't sins. They're simply how people's personalities are or understandable reactions to difficulties in our life. In our modern society that shrinks from calling many evils sin or wrong, we should not be surprised that there's such lawlessness and immorality. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. It's not simply getting the wrong emphasis or a simple misunderstanding. If we deny the actions of sin, we are calling God a liar. We are setting ourselves and our false beliefs up against God and his word. Anyone who makes these false claims is deceiving themselves. Calling God a liar and God's truth and word have no place in such a person's life. It's a challenge for us not to make light of sin. However, John, in dealing with these false claims, is primarily addressing those outside the church. Those who are not Christians. As you sit here this morning, is that you? Do you think that all this talk of sin is a bit extreme? Perhaps you think that really you're not that bad and sin is not a problem that you have. Don't deceive yourself. Don't call God a liar. Face up to the reality of sin in your life and don't ignore it. What can you do? Well, let's return to look at what is one of the most wonderful verses and promises in the Bible. Verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confession is the cure for denial. It's the remedy for self-deceit. John is not talking about a cursory sorry in a general way. He's talking about seriously coming before God and very specifically confessing our wrongdoing. And when we do this, we see both God's divine nature And his divine actions. His divine nature is shown in that he is faithful and just. He is faithful. We can have assurance of forgiveness. God will keep his promise and be true to his word. Once we have confessed our sins, our forgiveness does not depend upon ourselves. He is faithful. He will forgive. And as he is just, we know that the remedy for sin must be perfect. Payment has been made for our sins on our behalf. And a just God will not demand a second payment from us. Our forgiveness is complete and assured. We see God's divine actions by what he does. He forgives us. He absolves us from the punishment of sin. We are set free from the curse and the sentence of death that sin brings. But more than that, it's not just the setting of the record straight. 
He also cleanses us and purifies us from all unrighteousness. The sin is removed, but also the stain that the sin leaves is cleansed as we walk with him and fellowship with him. Our lives are changed. Forgiveness looks back to our past, but cleansing looks forward to our future holiness. So what will it be? Deny we are sinners? Deny that we sin, deceive ourselves, make God out to be a liar, continue in the sin that will lead to us bearing the eternal punishment for it? We cannot come into the presence of a God who is light in whom there is no darkness at all if we are still in our sins. If you don't know Christ and have never known forgiveness of your sins, this promise is for you. Confess your sins and you will know complete and perfect forgiveness. You can be assured of that. You will know his working in your life, seeking to cleanse and purify you. It's also a promise for those of us who know the Lord, for us to continually confess our sins and know afresh his wonderful forgiveness. So what if I sin again? At times it may appear as if biblical truth contradicts itself. It can be hard to keep it all in balance. So far, John has told us to walk in the light and Jesus' blood will purify us from all sin. Then he tells us not to deny that we are sinners and that we have sinned. Next he tells us we can enjoy full and free forgiveness and cleansing from our sins. At the start of chapter 2, John says, I write this to you so that you will not sin. And in his next breath he says, but if you do sin, what's going on here? Surely John can't have it both ways. John Piper, writing in this passage, says, The truth is a razor's edge between two errors. The error that says your conduct after conversion has nothing to do with your salvation. And the error that says your conduct after conversion must be perfect. John sets out the ideal for the Christian, that we will not sin. It's another theme he'll return to in chapter 3. This is what the Christian strives towards. That we will not sin. That we walk in the light. That we know full assurance of forgiveness. However, ongoing struggle, the conflict of sin, the fact that we will sin again, it's a reality that John doesn't hide. What we need to remember is that lack of perfection does not deny the gospel. John Newton said, I'm not what I ought to be but I am not what I once was. We don't have to pretend to be perfect. God knows the worst about us, yet accepts us in Christ. How do we deal with the sad and difficult reality of ongoing sin in our lives? If we don't deny it, if we don't pretend it's a problem, if we don't brush it under the carpet, well, most likely it gets us down. Because not only do we continue to sin, but we keep on repeating the same sins again and again. I'm sure we're all very similar in this regard. We fall. We sin again. We resolve not to fail at the same point. Perhaps it's losing our temper. Speaking too quickly. Causing hurt. Gossip. A simple lie. Careless thoughts. We struggle and we confess, we say sorry to God, and yet we do it again before long. 
The struggle, however, shows we are moving in the right direction. We are walking or seeking to walk in the light. Confession is what John has told us we must do. But how can we have assurance? How can we be effective in our Christian lives when we keep on sinning? John says, if you sin, or we could read it as, when you sin, remember that we have one who speaks to the Father in our defence. Other translations put it that we have an advocate with the Father. Now, I've never had the dubious pleasure of being in court. But I imagine that if I had to go to court, I would want a good advocate standing alongside me. One who knew the law back to front. Knew my case in depth. An advocate that the judge respected and would listen to. One who would vigorously defend me and put forward strong arguments in my favour. I'm sure the law courts in Belfast have any number of such wonderful advocates. But in the courtroom of heaven, there's only one advocate we need or want speaking in our defence. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus is the perfect advocate. Because he is the perfect man. He was born under law and kept the law completely. He knows the law. He knows you. He knows me. He knows our sin. Because he himself is perfect, he can command an audience with the judge who will listen to this advocate. Can you imagine it? We lowly sinners who despite our repentance continue to keep sinning, we have Jesus Christ speaking personally on our behalf in our defence in the throne room of heaven before Almighty God. How does that make you feel? Does that not give you cheer and hope? Does that not lift your spirit despite your ongoing failures? Well, that's all very well, we might think. But how can Christ speak in our defence? What can he say? Verse 2 is the case for the defence. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. He himself has paid the price. It's not a down payment. It's not partially paid. Our debt we owe for our sin is stamped, paid in full. Older translations, perhaps more accurately, use the word propitiation. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. It's not a common everyday word, but it conveys more than the concept of an atoning sacrifice. It means the sacrifice that turns away God's anger and wrath. A God of light in whom there is no darkness has anger and wrath towards sin. Jesus in his death on the cross in our place has completely exhausted every drop of God's wrath towards our sin. There is none left, not a drop. God is completely satisfied with Christ's sacrifice. We have full, complete, perfect and assured salvation. Praise God. Praise the name of Jesus for none of this is deserved. So as you seek to overcome sin in your life, the answer to the question, what if I sin again, is yes, confess it. But don't become self-focused and introspective. Lift your eyes to heaven where we have a perfect advocate, Jesus Christ, who has satisfied the wrath of God by dying in our place. Let that give us hope. Let that give us assurance. And let that encourage us in our struggle against sin. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. 
A great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. Jesus says, I have come into this world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness.